But hey, good morning. It's good to see you. If you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 31 through 59. We're in a new series this Sunday called I Am, and we're looking at a series of statements that Jesus made about who he is and really who God is. You know, it's important when you get to know somebody, the first thing we ask is, what is your name? That we get to know people through their name. Because name communicates intimacy. It's that doorway through which we connect to another human being. And see, God also has a name. When we come to get to know God, we get to know him first and foremost through his name. That God is not just a series of characteristics or qualities. God is not just a being that's out there in existence. But rather, God wants to make himself known. And the way that God has made himself known is through his name. And in the Gospel of John, there's a series of names that Jesus has uh, given us that help us to connect to God. Uh, I am statements, statements about who God is, what God will do, and what his character is like. And these are names through which we connect to the Father. We get to know him, experience him, and therefore live life with him. And today we're going to look at the first of those names, which is the most intimate and personal of all names, which is that Jesus calls himself the I am. We're going to discover what that means, that in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as I am that I am. And Jesus is going to take this very intimate and powerful phrase and not simply apply it to God, but instead he's going to apply it to himself. We're going to notice how people react. Because names, when you give a name, it's important. Now, I imagine it's uncomfortable when people forget your name. Do you have one of those names that people easily forget? Or maybe they say it the wrong way. They, pro- they pronounce it a different way than it uh, should be pronounced. Or maybe they, they always see you. And sometimes, I know my wife often gets called Michelle. She's not Michelle. She's Melissa. But this seems like some people have those names that people easily forget or replace with another name. When people forget your name, when they don't say your name, there's a a lack of intimacy. Or maybe they just make up a different name. Maybe instead of saying your name, they forget it and they just call you, hey, bud, hey, hey, you. It's, It's not a real close, intimate feel when people forget your name. And likewise with God, when he has given us his name, he's given it to us so that we might know him and experience him. So we're going to walk through this passage In John chapter 8, we're going to kind of go through verse by verse. We're not going to read it first. We're going to actually walk through it. And we're going to ask three questions. And here are the questions. And these are pretty vital questions. First of all, who does Jesus say that he is? And when he says who he is, how do people respond? And then finally, who do you think he is? So first of all, who does Jesus say that he is? And then when he reveals who he is, notice as we get into this passage how people respond. Because it's not the way that people respond today. When we think of who Jesus is, often today people that don't even believe in Jesus will say he was a good teacher. He was a decent man. But what you find in the Bible is Jesus won't let us sit on that fence. He won't allow us simply to believe that he was just a good teacher. That he had just come to instruct us. Rather, you're going to see a reaction in the people that I think is very different from the way that people react today. So who does he say he is? How did people respond? And then finally, with what he says, who do you believe that he is? So let's jump into that. And before we do, hey, let me, let me pray for us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you have sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, You have seen the Father, for I 
and the Father are one. I have not come of my own accord, but rather to reveal the glory of the Father. Father, it's through Jesus that we've come to know who you are. And so as we begin in this series to discover who you are and what that means to us and how it impacts the way we live, I want to ask, Father, in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, would you teach us as we get into your word? Would it be living and active, uh, Father? Would it speak into the heart? Would it discern where we are in life? And Father, today as we gather, would you meet us here in a way that causes us to know that you're with us, but also draws us deeper into who you are. And so, Father, meet us here today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So who did Jesus say that he is? So let's jump in actually in the end of John chapter 8 and pick it up in actually verse 58. Jesus is having a conversation with a gathering of people. And it looks at first, when you start reading the text in verse 31 and following, it looks like everybody's pretty happy. Because it seems as if he's speaking to a group of people who are following him and have believed in him. But in fact, what's going on is a very confrontational conversation. That many had already made a decision about who Jesus is. And their decision is this. He's leading Israel astray. Jesus has to go. And so though they're cloaked in this very friendly kind of demeanor, the confrontation that's happening is here is actually quite intense. And at the end, in verses 58 and 59, he comes to this conclusion. And here's what he says in verse 58. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now notice, he doesn't say, before Abraham was, I existed, or that I, was once, I once existed, or during Abraham's time I was alive. Rather, he's saying, before Abraham was, and then in the Greek, he's saying ego ami, which means I am. That I am that I am. I am existence. I am ultimate reality. I set everything in place and everything else in the world revolves around me. I am. And so if you notice in verse 59, they didn't like what Jesus said because notice their reaction. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. See, something's happening in this passage that for us, if we don't know the context of the Old Testament, you don't know the story of the Bible, it doesn't sit quite right. What was so threatening about the words that Jesus said? And why is there this violent reaction to what he says? Well, if we jump back in verse 31, we're going to begin to discover who Jesus claims to be and really what Jesus claimed to have done or what he says he could do. So let's jump down in verse 31 or actually to the beginning and walk through this. And he's going to make two astounding claims. And here's the first one about who he is. He says in verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now those are pretty famous words. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. A lot of people have quoted those words. But Jesus is saying, when it comes to my identity, not simply that I am a speaker of truth. Jesus is saying, I am the truth. And at the heart of Christianity is freedom. Now, at the heart of the Christian faith is freedom. Now, you may not see that freedom in the way that the church lives. You may not always experience that freedom in everyday aspects of life, but Jesus is saying when the truth is supplanted in the heart, when we're rightly relating to the truth, the truth sets us free. 
And the radical claim that he's going to make is that I am the truth. Now, we, we have a big problem with this word freedom. At least, I think, in our culture compared to the way that Jesus describes it and the way we understand that word today. Because many people think of freedom as the freedom to do what I want. Right? Freedom is the absence of restrictions. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what the truth is. Let me discover it for myself. That freedom is the absence of restrictions. It's the opportunity to live how I want, where I want, when I want, with whoever I want. It's freedom, right? But Jesus is saying freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It's not doing whatever your heart desires. No, freedom is the presence of the right restrictions. The restrictions that when applied to your life allow you to be who God has created you to be. And Jesus is saying in me is freedom. That in relating to the truth, in relating to who I am, you will be set free. And so notice their reaction, verse 33. They didn't like what he said, so they respond in verse 33. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus, you're telling me I'm not free. That's kind of offensive, isn't it? Hey, only Jesus can set you free. That's not a popular idea today. And they're saying, we're not enslaved. We're the children of Abraham. Here's the idea. We're the good guys. We're the moral people. You know, we're the ones that are religious. We're the ones that do things right. We're the ones that have the Old Testament and have the scriptures. We're not just doing what we want. How can you claim that we are not free? Their argument is, we're the children of Abraham. Our lineage goes way back, all the way to the beginning. And notice the way he responds to this. Because, see, freedom is not just simply a freedom of behavior. And freedom doesn't just show up in the what, what you do. You could be a very moral person and yet be enslaved. You could be a very religious person and yet be enslaved. That slavery doesn't simply look like immorality. It doesn't look like a, a lack of moral character. Now, he's saying to those who are very religious, you're just as enslaved is the world around you. Because their enslavement, see, it doesn't show up maybe in their behavior, but it shows up in the way that they approach God. Because see, sin has more to do with how we approach God than it does just what we do or how we live. It's missing the mark in our behavior, but it's really missing the mark in how we approach God. And so watch this in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, he's going to define what sin looks like. And he's going to use this illustration, and he's going to compare a child with a servant. And he says, the way I want you to think about freedom and sin is I want you to think about a home. And in this home, there's a servant, and there's a set of children. And sin affects the way that we relate to God. It certainly affects our behavior. It affects the way we think. But ultimately, it affects the way that we relate to God. Because sin, in this instance, Jesus is defining as slavery. Because he just said, I need to set you free. The truth will set you free. Those who practice sin are enslaved, meaning sin is slavery. But Jesus has come. Salvation is freedom. Now, we need to unpack that and understand what that means. But he's going to give us this illustration in verses 35 and 36. And he says, a slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever now he's saying a servant a slave their future is uncertain 
some ways it's like a job. You don't know how things are going to turn out because it's based on your performance. But a son, a child, they have a unique security in that house because kids can act up, but servants can't. You know, kids have a different way of relating to the father than simply a servant. And so in the end of this, in verse 36, he says, so if the son sets you free, if the truth sets you free, then you are free indeed. That the freedom that Jesus wants us to understand is the freedom of how we relate to God. The freedom that he describes is a freedom that comes when, when, when we relate to God as God wants us to relate to him. Now here's, again, the picture. There's a big difference between a child and a servant. Now, if you go to the house and maybe there's a servant and there's children in that house, they may look alike from the outside if you don't know who's who because they both live in the same house. Both children and servants, they have duties, responsibilities. They have to perform. There's things they have to do. And both servants and children are being cared for by the master, by the father. In some ways, on the outside, it's hard to tell who's acting, who's really a servant and who's a child. But see, the difference is based on how you're relating to the master. See, a servant relates to the master based on performance. Am I doing it well enough? Am I good enough? Because if I'm not good enough, it's going to lead to fear. How many of us relate to God with fear? Jesus said, or Scripture says, perfect love has driven out fear. You see, fear has to do with punishment, doesn't it? What does a servant fear? Punishment. They fear if I don't do it right, the master may kick me out. My, my future, my security, my job may be in jeopardy. They're always walking on those lines between one pride. Hey, I'm the best servant here. I'm the best person this guy's got. He can't do this without me. Or on the other hand, fear. But see, a child doesn't operate. Hopefully, if the father is good, they shouldn't be operating in fear. Because they know their relationship to the Father, to the Master, isn't based on what I'm doing. It's based on who I am. See, servants are always asking, what should I do? But children need to be reminded of who they are. That I belong here because I belong to my Father. And my relationship with the Father is secure. And Jesus is going to say it's secure because you have that relationship through me. That the reason he sets us free is because the relationship we have with the Father, you ready for this? Is Jesus' relationship to the Father. You know, think about Jesus' relationship to the Father. I mean, that's a pretty good relationship. And when the Father looks at us, he sees us as if we have done everything that Jesus has done, meaning our position with God is secure. And he's saying to these people, that's not how you're approaching the Father. That's not how you see God. No matter that you're the children of Abraham, it doesn't matter if you do not know how to relate to God. And I want to teach you to relate to God through me. So let me ask you, when you think of the Father, when you think of God, how do you relate to him? Now, often in the church, the problem is we fall to one of two directions. We fall into fear, which leads to judgment and guilt and shame, or we lend to pride. Hey, I'm a good Christian. I'm the kind of Christian everybody else should be. I, I kind of look at everyone else and I see where they fail and I have this prideful attitude in my heart because I'm doing it right. Or maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe I'm constantly asking whether I, I do really believe or whether God really does know me. And Jesus is saying we should have a security in knowing the Father through him. And so let's watch how this plays itself out because that's the first claim that he makes, that through faith in him he sets us free. 
And so if that's true, have we received that? And second, are we walking in that? Because here's the second idea. In verse 51, there's a second claim I want to look at quickly. And the second claim is this in verse 51. He says, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So not only does Jesus set us free in this life, he's saying, I can also set you free in the life to come. Which means, you ready for this? Jesus is not a great teacher. Great teachers talk about this life. Jesus is saying, my teaching, it sets you free, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Now what we're going to find is those that are listening to him, they don't like what he's saying, but they're not ready to receive the weight of Jesus' claim. And that's often how the world is. What they tend to do is they laugh. They mock. We're going to see that in the way that people respond. They don't want to receive what Jesus is saying, that only Jesus can set us free, that only Jesus can give us a freedom that's not only real in this life, but in the life to come. They're going to respond to that. And so we're going to jump into verse 37 and follow how they respond in this discussion. And I've got to tell you, some of the words in here, they're really strong. You ready for this? There's going to be a lot of words like you're a demon or you're demonic. Now realize, if you go back to verse 31, these are people who claimed to believe in him. They claimed to follow him. But when they started to understand really who Jesus was, you see what happened is they fell off the fence. And maybe on the outside they, they claimed to believe in him, but when he, they truly began to understand who he was, see, Jesus won't let us straddle the fence. When you read the Gospels, you'll find he's constantly pushing people. See, we want a Jesus that's always, I think, friendly, that's easy to deal with, not trying to upset anyone. But when it comes to who he is, he does not want us to stay in the same place. He wants us to see him for who he is. He will not allow us to straddle the fence. He will not allow us to just say he's a great moral teacher. Because watch how this discussion plays out. Verse 37. Jesus is responding and he says, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of that which I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And you wonder, what father is he describing? Because he's saying, you're trying to kill me. And if you're claiming to be children of Abraham, that's not something Abraham would do. It's certainly not something God would do. And so if you're claiming to know God, why are you reacting this way to me? And they answered him, Verse 39, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Abraham believed by faith. He trusted by faith. But now instead, here's the linchpin, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, and notice the insult, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Why would they say that? Because they're talking about his mother. We're not born of sexual immorality. You know, we're not like you. Because what happens when the truth comes out? You need to start attacking. And so they're starting to attack his character, his identity. Watch where this goes. And Jesus says to them, If God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God and I am here, and I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, 
And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. What does it mean to be demonic? I think we have to take all the Lord of the Rings and all those images, the exorcist and all that stuff away. And you have to realize the essence of demonic activity is to lie. That seems pretty subtle, doesn't it? The essence of demonic activity is to deny truth. To stand on the opposite side of truth. And he's saying to him, he's not saying, hey, uh, he's not trying to throw out slander or accusations. He's saying, look at your heart. Look at the way you're responding to the truth. You're angry and you want to see me dead. Where does that desire come from? And he's saying it comes from that one, your father, who had that desire in the beginning. And so notice verse 45, but I tell you the truth and you do not believe me. Verse 46, and which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear is that you're not of God. And the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? See, that's another accusation. It's a racial slur. And then they go on and say, and have a demon. Meaning, Jesus, you're not a great teacher. If this is what you claim, if this is who you say you are, the one thing I cannot accept is that you just have great stories or great principles to live by. No, if this is who you claim to be, there is something demonic about you. He answers, verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews told him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, who do you make yourself out to be? Remember, verse 31, these are the people who believed him. Notice, I mean, jump back there, and it says these were those who were following him, trusting in him. But see, they really didn't know who he claimed to be. And now that they're starting to get the picture, they're saying, wait a minute. They start throwing out accusations, slurs, racial slurs, accusations about his character. There must be a demon within you. Who do you make yourself out to be? And in verse 54, Jesus addresses the question. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Notice the way they respond with laughter. And so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And he said to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So stop there. There's been a lot of claims. I can set you free. I can give you a freedom that goes beyond this life. And to none of those claims did they respond with violence until he said, before Abraham was, I am. And notice in verse 59 what they do. And so they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out the temple. It was at this moment that those who believed said, wait a minute, I can't believe this. 
Because what he's saying in verse 58 is not simply that I existed or that I pre-existed, but that I am existence itself. And that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. See, in verse 56, when he's saying Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he's not just saying Abraham wanted to live in my day. Or Abraham wanted to teleport to my day. Now, he's saying something that's rather um, shocking if you know the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they're always talking about the day. The big day. Sometimes it's called the day of the Lord. If you go back and read the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and the minor prophets, they're looking forward to a day. And here's what happens on that day. It's the day that God shows up. And when God shows up, everything that sin has made wrong will be made right. That's what the presence of God does. When the presence of God comes and he puts things under his feet, what is distorted by sin, because remember, sin, the essence of it is to lie and to enslave. Wherever there is slavery, there is freedom. Because in the presence of truth, all slavery is pushed out. And on that day, everything that sin has made wrong will be made right. So what is he claiming? He's saying, you know the day they've been talking about? It's today. All the things the prophets hope for, it's happening in my day. Abraham's hope of the day is my day. My day is the ultimate day when all things will be made right. And to make sure he gets this, he says, before Abraham was... I am. Now, I'd encourage you at some point, go back to Exodus chapter 3. We don't have as much time today to do that. But in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is meeting with God. And the question is, hey, God, who do I say you are? You want, to take, you want me to take this message to the Israelites, but who are you? Who am I to say that you are? And what God did in this moment, and if you study the Old Testament, there are these different Hebrew names for God, like El or Elohim. And at this point, everything shifts in the Bible. And instead of this generic name for God called El or Elohim, we find this brand new name that shows up in the most intimate of ways as God relates himself to Moses and he says, I am Moses that I am. I am ultimate existence. John may say in John chapter 1, he is the Logos. He is the word that became flesh and manifest. That was a Greek way of saying, I am the I am. I am all things. I am all existence. And all things find their meaning in me. And Jesus is not simply teaching that about God. He's saying, that's who I am. And they respond appropriately. Because if someone claims to be the I am in that sense and in that day with this kind of word that held such reverence, it was a word that no one would even say, a word they wouldn't even write. Once they grasped who he claimed to be, they responded, I think, appropriately. They got off the fence. Now, instead of believing who he was, they wanted to kill him. But I think that's an appropriate response when you understand the magnitude of who Jesus claimed to be. Not just that he was teaching us a path of freedom, but that he is freedom. And notice how strange it is. Jesus says, though he's teaching about himself, he says, I haven't come to glorify myself. You know, when you have an uh, egocentric teacher, meaning a teacher that teaches about himself, they're often kind of quirky. When somebody comes and claims to be God, there's often a lot of moral issues around that person. They don't tend to have the kind of life that Jesus had. They don't have the moral teachings that Jesus had. Jesus was very egocentric in his teaching, meaning he talked about himself. But realize realize Buddha didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do that. Instead, they didn't say, hey, I am God. No, they said, this is the pathway to God. 
Jesus, unlike any other religious teacher that claimed to actually be God, there's some that claim to be God, but they don't have any followings today because we know they're crazy. He claimed to be God, and he manifests who he was through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so they responded. And I think in many ways they responded in a way that's appropriate to what he's saying. And yet today, it's interesting, isn't it, in our cultures, how many of us want to just simply believe that Jesus was a good teacher? See, how do we walk that fence? I think the way that we walk that fence is we've got to get into the Bible and start taking some of these phrases out. We've got to start picking and choosing. And if that's a place that you're at, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Try it. Honestly, let's just try it. Let's go into the Bible and just start picking. Now, which verses bother you? I'll tell you. 20 years ago, it would be a different set for me. Today, it's a whole different. And I don't know. I'm not that wise. I imagine in 20 years from now, I'm going to look back at my 40-year-old self and go, what a fool. What an idiot. Every decade, right? Every time I learn something new, there's something about me, something about my values that seem to shift. How can we possibly say today that we can look back and discover and discern what Jesus said and what he didn't said based on our values, based on what we think is best? Try it. Read back into the Old Testament and try to take those verses out. You know, C.S. Lewis, when he described the way that Jesus spoke, and described who Jesus claimed to be, this is the way that he captured it. And I quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. So he's quoting, he's saying, some people say that Jesus claims to be a great moral teacher. I don't accept his claim to be God. He says that is the one thing we must never say. For a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell himself. But let's not come up with this foolish idea that he is simply a great moral teacher. Jesus won't allow us to make that decision. The only way we can do that is by taking things out. You know, Scott Peck, the writer of the series of books, The Road Less Traveled, began reading the Gospels, and, and this is how he described the Jesus that he encountered. Listen to his words. He says, I was absolutely thunderstruck by the extraordinary reality of the man I found in the Gospels, meaning it wasn't what I expected. I discovered a man constantly frustrated. This leaps out on virtually every page. He's continually saying to people, what do I have to do? To, what do I have to say to you? How many times do I have to say it? What do I have to do to get through to you? If the gospel writers had been into PR and embellishment, as I had assumed before I was reading the gospels, they would have given us a Jesus most Christians still seem to be trying to hold on to. One with a sweet, unending smile on his face, patting little children on, his, on their head, just strolling through the earth, unflappable. But the Jesus of the gospels is the best kept secret in Christianity. Who do you say he is? When you look at the claims that Jesus made, you look at what he, he said about himself, how egocentric his teaching was, and yet how humble his life was. And look at the way that he, what he taught. The moral teaching of Jesus is not just simply amazing. It's beyond any teaching that anyone has communicated. The idea of loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, addressing those who harm you, 
seeking to be generous towards those who are against you. Those ideas are only found in the New Testament. When people say today, hey, I believe in a God of love, you know where that comes from? It doesn't come from any other source than from the Old and the New Testament. The idea of a God of love doesn't come from nature. It doesn't come from natural selection. It doesn't come from what we see in the world. The idea of love is emanated through the teachings and the life of Jesus Christ, who is willing to die not just simply for those who believed in him, but for those who were his enemies. In his teaching, in his life, you see a moral perfection, and yet you see a tremendous passion to keep our eyes focused on him. Egocentric, centered on himself and his teaching, saying that only through me you can come to know God, and yet in his words and in his life, there's a beautiful grace. There's an amazement of how he responds to others that is unlike anything the world has seen, and that's why, unlike many who have claimed to be God, Christianity still exists. The one question historians really need to answer is why Christianity? Jesus isn't unique in claiming to be the Messiah. He's not unique in claiming to be God. He's not even unique in saying that I have come to die for your sins. What's unique about Jesus beyond the resurrection is that people continue to follow. And those who followed him would follow him to the point of death in pursuing a man who made these kind of claims. So for us today, I think the question is, who do we say that he is? And in some ways, would we be honest enough to look at our lives and say, hey, right now and what I feel and how I think and how I'm responding to others, what does that say about what I believe? I think often for me when I run into challenges, I don't want to be set free. I want to stay in my mindset. I don't want a God that's going to push me, it's going to make me submit, that's going to tell me to obey. Now, I think in all of us there is this rebellious attitude, this spirit that we don't want God to be who he is. We don't want Jesus to be who he is. And so I'm going to respond in a way that fits with who I am. I want freedom, but I want it on my terms. You know, the majority of the Christian life really is submitting everything under the authority and empowering presence of Jesus. That in every aspect of life, it's saying, God, hey, as I face this new challenge today, as I see what's coming down the road, as these things are happening I want to bring my life, my thoughts, my marriage, my finances, my health, my future under the authority of your presence and, Father, into the intimacy of who you are, that through faith in Jesus, I'm not a servant anymore. I'm not a slave. I'm a child. And your love has fallen on me, and you look upon me, and you say, you are my child, and whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. Father, help me to walk in that. And then, Lord, help me to submit to the truth. Because if he is the truth, the challenge is we have to put ourselves under that truth. And in moments of weakness, is simply to admit like Paul did, Father, you know, in this moment, may your strength be perfected in my weakness so that the power of Christ may be displayed in me. As you walk through your life and as you look at the things that you're challenged with, what does it say about who God is? And are we still trying to straggle that fence? Are we trying to ride the fence in a way? Hey, I'm committed to him, but not fully. And it could be we're committed to him not fully because we don't really trust that he said and what he claimed to be and who he claimed to be. And so as we celebrate communion today, I want to just simply ask that question as we go through this series. Are we seeking to know God as he is? Are we seeking to put aside our, our challenges? And it's okay. I want you to understand, certainly at, at Bergen Park, it's okay to bring doubts. 
Doubts are not the antithesis to faith. Doubts often walk right alongside faith because at every moment we trust by faith, there's always new experiences, new challenges. But God isn't afraid of our doubts. We do have to be willing to admit that those doubts are present and surrender those doubts to him and say, God, no matter what I'm walking through today, would you enable me to trust you, to really see you for who you are? And then out of that, Lord, to live in a way that reflects what you've done. At this time, I'm going to invite those that are going to serve communion to come forward. Um, at Bergen Park, here's how we celebrate communion. We do go through a process called intinction. When you come forward, they will hand you the bread, and they'll say, this is Christ's body, which is broken for you. We take the bread, and we dip it in the cup, and they will say, this is Christ's blood, which was shed for you. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this table is open to you. But as we do this, let's do this with an attitude of reflection and say, Father, would you teach me today? Show me who you are. Help me to walk in that. If there's something in my life, if there's even something that needs to be addressed, would you, would you show me? And allow me to have the courage and the humility to address it. And so before we celebrate communion, uh, let me pray. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that through Jesus Christ, you haven't simply given us a doctrine. You've given us a person. You haven't just given us a solid teaching. You've given us a solid person. Someone that reflects who you are, both in their actions and their teaching and their word, but also in their power and his death for, for, for us, those who were still in our sins. Father, you died for us and you sent your son so that through his death, we might be set free, not to live under the law, but to live under grace and to obey you, Father, not out of fear or even out of pride, but just out of a humble gratitude. That we're now the children of God. We have no fear in love. Your perfect love has driven out fear. And so we walk not in our obedience. We walk in Christ's obedience. And that helps us to obey. It helps us to have gratitude even when we face challenges. That God, even though we may not know what to do, we can trust you. And Father, we can admit, Lord, would you work through us as we keep our eyes on you. Enable us to trust you day by day. We surrender all things to you, Father. Thank you for this time of celebration. In Jesus' name. Amen.